0: management.
1: Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is two times James Beard Award winner, David Leet, author of Notes on a Banana. A, mem- a Memoir of Food, Love, and Manic Depression. Born into a devoutly Catholic food-crazed family of Azorean immigrants in 1960s Massachusetts, David Leet had a childhood that was the stuff of sitcoms. But what no one knew was that this smart-ass, determined dreamer with a vivid imagination also struggled with the frightening mood swings of bipolar disorder. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, David.
2: Thank you, Catherine.
0: Well, uh, you have quite a story. Uh, the title, of course, is your book, Notes on a Banana. Who is the banana? Or what is the banana? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it comes from, there are two things. Uh, my mom's my mom's nickname for me, or one of my mom's nicknames for me, is banana. And it comes from me being a kid, very, very young, a toddler, basically, and kind of yanking on her skirt and saying, you know, Peabot and banana, which was my way of saying peanut butter and banana sandwiches, which I still love. And so she took to calling me banana, um, and banana head is another one that she would call me. But the notes on a banana itself is, uh, since, I was, since I was very young, um, my mother, and also with my father, she would do this. She would write every morning at our breakfast spots at the table, would be a banana with a note from her. And it would say, God bless, we love you. And then in the middle part, which is the big real estate part, would be... Do good in school, do great on your test. If I were in high school and we were in the show in the drama club, uh, you break a leg tonight, take out the trash. So it was her way of supporting me, encouraging me, uh, giving me some love, uh, reminding me of certain things. And my dad also got a note in his lunchbox, too, and that's where the uh, cover image comes from, that idea of writing on a banana. And it's also where the title comes from.
0: Well, your mother, what a connector she was. I mean, she must, was she a stay at home mom? I'm thinking about, gee, doing this every single day, connecting with you on everything you were doing, and also with your father, I guess, too, at the same time. Yeah. Um,
2: no, she wasn't stay at home. She actually, she worked, and, um, but it was just, my mom gets up extraordinarily early. I, I four thirty, five o'clock is the, is late for her, and um, that her morning is her time, and that's where she got all this stuff organized for my father and for me. But she was a great, she was and is still a great connector. When I go home, there's always a banana at my spot, the same counter that my dad made. My dad built our house uh, we had back then in the '60s. Uh, I sit there, and there's a banana for me and a banana for my father.
0: Well, okay. well, now it does sound like you have this kind of like, as you're describing it, like this kind of ideal situation, mom and dad and connecting with the banana and everything. But that wasn't necessarily the case, right? I mean, you had some really no. serious problems going on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And how it started, the big, the big thing that, that started it all was uh, when I was 11 years old, almost 12, I went to go see the movie, if you remember, House of Wax with Vincent Price. It was the old horror film three d and it was a kid's matinee, and so I was there and with a bunch of uh, with some friends and a bunch of kids I knew were in the audience and I'm the only one who just jumped up and ran out because I had what I later learned years years later learned was a full blown panic attack and then I was outside, I called my mother, and she's like, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I don't I just wanted to say hi. And she's like, well, hi, and I'll get back in the movie. And it's the last thing I wanted to do. And then I started pacing the sidewalk outside the movie theater. And I eventually knew I had to go back in or I'd be made fun of because I was gone for so long. And I had, I think, uh, two more panic attacks while the movie happened. And we all thought it was going to go away. When I went home, I told my parents, we all thought it was going to go away in a day or two. And it didn't, maybe in a week or so, and it didn't. And eventually my father took me to our family doctor who said he could prescribe tranquilizers, uh, Valium specifically. And even I, at 11, almost 12 years old, knew that Valium was not something to give kids. kid. You know, Hollywood starlets were always taking Valium and, and tranquilizers, but not 11-year-old kids. My father got me out of there very quickly. And it eventually subsided, but then it happened again the next year. And it stopped. It didn't eventually subside. Excuse me. It stopped dramatically. I just remember suddenly feeling fine. It all just stopped. And then it happened again next year. The same thing. I went to see another movie and we thought maybe the movies were the triggers, but we realized later on it wasn't. And But that didn't just suddenly stop. That dragged on for about a year and a
0: half. So what were the triggers, though? On. Because it is kind of odd that, like, you went to the movies. i I just want to know, like, what were the triggers? Mm-hmm. Did you? I mean, obviously, you must. Well, have... I
2: think as time went on, we saw that there were different triggers that what it was. And I think uh, what I was seeing in the movies was kind of all this manifestation of there was a lot of there was, you know, violence, 1950s violence, which is very different than the kind of violence we see on, on in movies today. And I think that that was very disturbing to me to see that, uh, and scared me. But it it didn't. It doesn't. It didn't explain why it would last so long, why it would last the first time three months. Um, and what we later discovered, but what I later discovered at 36 years old, when I finally actually diagnosed myself based on reading Kay Redfield Jamison's wonderful book, An Unquiet Mind, and she is a uh, doctor at um, Johns Hopkins University, and she suffers from bipolar dis- disorder 1, which is the very severe form, um, that I saw myself in those pages, and then I, I got evaluated properly and finally started getting on medication. But looking back, I realized it wasn't so much that there was a trigger. It's just that there was so much, um, there was an, a ramping up happening before that I was completely unaware of. I was doing better in school. I was getting very social. I was getting very talkative. I was getting very, I'm, I've always been involved with the arts, getting very creative, these great creative ideas, bursts of energy. I wasn't seeing that those things were bad because those things all feel great. So these things all preceded all of these episodes. But we didn't know that and, and, until there really was some tipping point.
0: Yeah. I think in, during those periods in the 50s and 60s and even early 70s it was much more difficult in terms of diagnosis, right? Just not just Absolutely. for you, they didn't but believe, yeah, and, um,
2: Children could have manic depressive disorder um, or bipolar disorder. I prefer manic depressive. It's more descriptive. And when I finally, I basically told my parents, if you don't let me go see a psychiatrist, I will do harm to myself. And I knew that I wouldn't do harm, but it was the only way that I think I could break through the stigma and the barrier that my family, my community, and the culture at that time had of kids seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And even at that point, I was just diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, and they weren't seeing, they weren't, this doctor, although he was very good, and I, I, he did a lot of good for me, didn't catch some of the more, um, more subtle signs that something was going on. I would, I would start suddenly flying high, and, you know, when you see a kid who's been down in the dumps, suddenly flying high and feeling great and taking off on their bicycle all day long, you'd think, ah, he's back to normal, back to being a kid. But I think that there was something else that was brewing, and it it was in its nascent form back then. And now I can clock it perfectly. I can see exactly the pattern.
0: So now are you on medication?
2: Yes. I got on medication when I was 36 years old. It was a four-year journey to find the right combination of medication. And I'm one of the very lucky people who the medications, the base medications that I started then, I'm still on. There wasn't like tons and tons of changes. This first four years there were till we found this combination. Uh, but it was a four-year journey, and that was, that was actually almost more painful than the prior 25 years of trying to figure out what was wrong with me uh, because it was, I, was feeling, I was feeling like a guinea pig for the medical community. Uh, and it, was, it really frustrated me and angered me uh, because doctors would just try things out, as, and but you're the one who has to go home and have side effects. Or get worse because of the medication. They're not having it and they're not experiencing that. You're the guinea pig. Um, so that was a very, very difficult time for me.
0: Yeah. And it's a very difficult time, I think, for a lot of people. And I don't, I, unfortunately, or. I know so many people who do suffer from bipolar disorder. It's interesting. You said you like to use manic depressive because that really describes the, your, how you feel. But we kind of want to whitewash it a bit, don't we? Because we bipolar sounds much more scientific and much more medical, and like the, the stigma is sort of somewhat detached.
2: Yeah, and I think what happens is bipolar slips almost into the, um, the vernacular as being, you know, oh, that's so bipolar, you know, that something is kind of up and down or you're, you're feeling extreme on something, but it doesn't really explain to me. It's not very descriptive, and I know that it's not p- politically correct, but that's fine. I, I do use that term, and I prefer that term, over bipolar. And, you know, it, this mental illness is far more common in our country than any of us realize. It's, almost, it's 19% of, of Americans have a mental illness. And 79 million Americans are on psychiatric drugs. So that is so many people. That's, that's almost a fifth of our population is mentally ill to some degree or in some, with some form of mental illness. Yet, why is there so much stigma? Why are we so afraid to talk about mental illness? And I think that is part of the reason why I wrote the book. It was important for me to start, for me to do my job and stand up and say, this is my story, and I hope you can get something from it.
0: How do you think your story, your memoir specifically, Mm -hmm. will help people with mental illness?
2: Well, I think that when I used to teach writing, which wasn't very long, I don't think I was particularly good at it, but I would always say to my students, the more specific your story, the more universal its appeal and I try to be very, very specific in my particular story. It's about dealing with being son, uh, the child of an immigrant family and not wanting to be part of that culture, having to deal with coming out and being gay, having to deal with mental illness. I became very, very specific about what that was. And I think that because it's so specific, I've had people who do not have bipolar but who maybe have depression or who um, are particularly sensitive or um, maybe anxious. And even those people who don't have those things find something in the book that they can relate to or they know someone that this, it it sounds familiar. There's some, there's some resonance to them. There's some, there's some, some, it's almost as if there's a string that's been plucked like on a cello and they can hear that vibration and either in themselves or of someone else. And I'm hoping that people see that. And are able to pass it on, and also too what 's really important that I, that listeners know that notes a banana notes on a banana is not this this deep, dark, heavy three hundred and eighty four page treatise on mental illness there 's a tremendous amount of humor and joy and lightness in the book also because that also goes in part and goes along with my life it 's who i am it 's a lot of humor in my life, but it 's also the ups and downs of the illness too and i 'm hoping that people maybe recognize that recognize wait a minute, I, my husband is like this. My, he has these introverted and extroverted periods, which is how I tried to explain it earlier on. Or this, this um, my quiet self and my loud self was another way I tried to explain this to doctors. Maybe somebody will pick up on that and they'll go, that's the terminology I used or that's just like what I used to say. And maybe that will be the end because why I decided to do it or the final straw that made me realize I had to write this book, is I was just about to write a book of fun essays. I was going to collect those from my website, Leeds Culinaria, that I'd written, and also for Bon Appetit and other magazines, and write maybe another 10 or 15 and publish it. And But I decided to write a blog post titled uh, Manic Dep- Bipolar Disorder and Julia Child, My Therapist. And it talks about those times in... the the 70s where I would watch Julia Child on TV in the afternoon when she was in repeats and how for that half hour that hamster wheel of really punitive thoughts would slow in my brain and I felt better for a while just that half hour and it wasn't so much about the food although food was important to me it was about her and what she did for me and I wrote that and the response was huge and there were a lot of people saying, I admire your courage. This took a lot of bravery to write this. I applaud you for being so honest. But then people started saying, I think my husband may have something similar to this. Or I think maybe my kid might have this. But it was a mother who wrote me an email privately who said, I wish my son would have read this before he killed himself. That's when I knew that I needed that you need- to do this.
0: Yeah. Uh, I needed to put the
2: story out there. hmm
0: Talk to us about, I know you just said, you kind of said this in passing, but you said uh, suddenly, or not suddenly, but uh, another sort of turning point in your life when you realized you were gay and you came out. But you also Mm -hmm. talk about, you tried to turn straight. How old did you try to turn? (laughs) Tell us about that. I
1: was, at
2: that time, I think I was 24, 23 to 24, about 24 years old to about 26. Uh, I had, uh, when I went to college, way to college at RIT in Rochester, New York, I grappled with this demon and I finally basically wrestled it to the ground and came out, well, kind of tiptoed out of the closet there, but um, I, I had resolved myself to being gay. Um, it still was the 70s, late 70s, but still wasn't exactly what you do in Rochester, New York, but I was okay with it. Then I go to Carnegie Mellon University. I switched majors and once I become. I became an acting major at Carnegie Mellon University, met a young woman and fell head over heels in love with her, but there was no sexuality involved. And I didn't feel that way toward her, but I just naturally assumed it would follow since I had these incredible deep feelings. I'd never felt that for anyone before, anyone, male or female. And so we went through a long tortured process of being together, um, and, but eventually it just never worked out for obvious reasons. But I did get involved with this organization called Aesthetic Realism in New York City, which one of the things they did back then was supposedly change gay men straight, help them change. And for two years, I subjected myself to this basically form of conversion therapy and it was brutal and it was demeaning and degrading. It must have been horrific. It was absolutely horrific and I don't really want to get into the the details of what they do but it was just, it it was so emotionally debilitating because what happens is you get all of your friends become fellow students and your social life is revolved around what they do at the foundation and you read the books and you all read the same books and you all start telling telling on each other to all the teachers there and so there everyone knows your business and there was just no sense of privacy and after two years i had had it and i when i decided that this is not for me i just have to embrace my gayness that i lost every single friend i had no one talked to me they all turned their backs on me which i think said very much about the organization and about the people i had thought were friends And so basically, I came out of the closet for the last time at about 26 or so, and I struggled until my late, late 20s, early 30s with, number one, dealing with the damage that was done by aesthetic realism, and then trying to understand what it's like to be a gay man, because, you know, men of my age, I'm 56 years old, we had a delayed adolescence. We weren't 15 years old, 16 years old, going out on dates and with boys and 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 doing what
0: and going to proms and doing all this stuff yeah
2: all of that stuff that's so age appropriate you know and holding hands and will he or won't he i had none of that so i was it was like a delayed adolescence a lot of gay men especially of my my generation have a delayed adolescence so we're going through what kids of 14 and 15 go through in their late 20s early 30s which is what happened to me and then I finally met my partner uh, when I was 33 years old, Alan, and we've been together now 24 and a half years.
0: Congratulations. And he is the one, right?
2: He is the one.
0: Yeah, 24 and a half years. Good for you. Um, I made it to 20 years, but now I've... Another 20 years? (laughs) Not easy. I'm not going to tell you my story, but anyway, that's a good story. That's a great ending, but... um, so, I mean, you have a lot of lessons in the book, a lot of stuff to share with people, and of course, I mean, obviously, you're a writer, you're humorous, I mean, you are the person to do it, but you before, just when we were talking a little bit before the show, you said there's something you really wanted to mention, a new project that you're doing now, so tell, I want to, yeah. we want to hear about that, yeah.
2: Sure. It's called The Banana Project, and it really is an honor of my mother, who is still alive and, like I said, still writing a bananas for me. Is um, I'm asking everyone out there um, in your listenership and my readership to get a banana and write a note of love, compassion, encouragement, support, whatever it is, to someone that you love, a friend, family member, coworker And it can be about anything, just about love, about mental illness, about coming out of the closet, anything, having a great day in school and photographing it. And taking that and putting it on social media with the hashtag notes on a banana. And what we're trying to do, my publisher and I are trying to gather all of them and put them together in this big, yellow, uh, wonderful digital quilt of love and support and encouragement. And we're hoping that it becomes this sort of movement, like tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, and that means something now. And we want the idea of writing on a banana to someone you love to mean something, that it means support, it means love, it means caring, it means encouragement. Uh, I think we need more of this now in our society, uh, in, our, in our culture, and in this time, more than ever. And we're hoping that we can get people to do this, so therefore we can share this with others, and others can see The love that's that's just bounding back and forth and ping ponging through our lives.
0: I mean, I think that's so important, and I also, I mean, I do agree with you. We need it now more than ever. How do we do that, though? I mean, this is sort of like it. It seems to me, and you were talking about the '60s and the '70s and intolerance. Mm -hmm. Are we going back to that? I mean, it's. I mean, we have you know half the country. We're divided in terms of uh, politically, socially, uh, economically. How do we not... Well, you can't go backwards because things are different now than they were then. But still, what can we do? I mean, you're the person to ask. I mean, what, I, I think because uh, of what you're doing and the perspective that you have.
2: Well, I read an article yesterday on, in The New Yorker about Margaret Atwood. And she was posed almost the same question. And she said it's constantly a dance between push and push back. And for quite a long time, we've been pushing back. And now we're being pushed And I think the way that we can do this is each individual person, if they care about themselves, their family, their culture, the world, our environment, has to stand up and tell their truth. They've got to stand up and they've got to, I I want to back away from saying fight, but just standing up and being counted and saying their truth. Because if every single person, who had mental illness and and as i said there's 79 million people in america who are on psychiatric drugs it's one in six people stood up we we would be shocked at how many people in the world in our country excuse me um have mental illness or how many people are gay there, there's a lot of people they don't know that their co-worker is gay and I, if all of us stood up and are accounted for for what we did and told our truth st- steadfastly without fear or anger I think that would go a long way toward us being able to, to bring back, to, to, to not bring back, to, to create a reality in which we all can, a world in which we all can live in. Because we, you say we're not going back in a certain sense. I don't agree with that because look what's in the news now. is conversion therapy. I thought that wasn't that illegal? Isn't that
0: illegal, David? I thought that was illegal.
2: There are several states. The last one I just read was Arizona, I believe it was, that made it illegal. But there's talk about conversion therapy. And, uh, you know, uh, Vice President Pence believes in conversion therapy. And he, of course, he's entitled to, but the damage that's done. Uh, is is horrific and so at least what i read yesterday or the day before in arizona it's uh, anyone under 18 years old it's illegal they cannot do it if someone wish uh, willingly goes into conversion therapy that's their choice as an adult Uh, so those things make me nervous and women's rights um and and the stance on women and and our, our opinion of family all being changed so we need to stand up tell our truth you know, do a mini version of what I did with my my book. It was told. I told my truth, and I think if there were more people who were truth tellers about their lives, there would be more commonality.
0: Yeah, but now we're in this age of like, what do we know? What the truth? I mean, you're talking about a different kind That's of a truth, fake I, news. I guess. Exactly. Yeah, fake That's news. That's what same. I started. Yeah.
2: You know, there's what fake is- news, and we believe these stories, and and if we, you know, it's 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 I don't. It's not a Pollyanna point of view, and and it really does start with that individual, each of us starting in our own little world, the world of our family, the world of of our community, our world of our state, you know, and then it it moves up, Um, but I know that, I I don't know if you know the author Mary Carr, who wrote um, uh, The Liars Club and Cherry, and she wrote a a trilogy of of memoirs, and she's sort of considered the queen of, of memoirs, she's an extraordinarily good writer, She said that once she wrote the first book, which was The Liars Club, which was very honest um, about her upbringing in, I I want to say it's Texas, that she had more people come up to her and say, you told my story, you told my story. I didn't have the courage, but what you said was what my life was like, or this part, when she was um, sexually abused very young, that was my life, that happened to me, but I didn't have the courage to say it. So she became the voice for a lot of people. And the more we can become voices for those who can't speak up, I think the better off we're going to be and encourage those who can speak up to have the courage to do that. It takes a lot of guts for some kid. And I'll tell you, I admire any kid who can do that. 16 years old saying, I am taking my boyfriend, same sex, girlfriend, same sex to the prom. I never could have done that. I never could have done that.
0: I live in kind of a bubble in New York, so uh, we have big yep, proms for the kids. Yeah, you know, me too. Uh, n- and, and, yeah, no,
2: you know, but even in New York, when I got here in the '80s, um, you know, there was definitely gay bashing, and I, I see gay bashing now, um, and it's, it's it's a disturbing, alarming thing.
0: Well, we can't become complacent. I, I mean, obviously, that's no. what you're saying. No, you can't. No, have to push back
2: that yeah. Margaret Atwood was talking about.
0: And I think one other thing, we only have a couple more minutes and I want you to kind of, you know, tell us where, you know, online where we can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, but give us a website. Uh, but I think when people do tell the truth, like you're saying, and you write your memoir and you really seek the truth, it really resonates. You know, when you're hearing the truth, you know, you can talk about fake news, but if someone really is telling their story, you can feel that. So I, I, and you respect, and they're going back to your mother and you can connect to it. Um, so yeah. I think what you say is is obviously extremely important, but a couple more minutes. So tell us, people want to know more about your project and also the website and where we can go to get more information.
2: Sure. Uh, For the banana project, if they just search hashtag notes on a banana on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you'll see that it's already starting. And uh, please contribute your banana. Uh, Don't have to buy the book. You can just send a banana to you, a banana note to your husband, kid, wife, brother, hus- husband, whatever, and um, write a note and put it out there with hashtag notes on a banana. And if uh, your listeners go to Leeds Culinaria, which is my website, uh, and also my blog on it, and they, the shortcut to that is lccooks.com. If they think Lucky Charms cook, Cooks.com, so luckycharmcooks.com. There's tons of recipes. We've been doing this for 19 years. There's my blog, which talks all about the book. They can buy the book through that. They can get autographed copies. Um, and also, if they go to any of their independent bookstores, if they go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, online, they can find it anywhere. It's absolutely at all the bookstores right now.
0: Great. Well, David is not hiding. Uh, David Leed, Notes on a Banana, A Memoir of Food, Love, and Manic Depression. Great talking to You today really enjoyed the conversation. You
2: too, Catherine. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, We're going to take a break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time.
2: These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit.
1: Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866
2: 472 5787.
1: 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zoc Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Captain Roger Hill, West Point graduate and decorated soldier, author of Dog Company, a true story of American soldiers abandoned by their high command. This true story that weaves a battle action with military courtroom drama and has been described as sometimes a bizarre world where the rights of the enemy take precedent over or priority over the safety of our own troops. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Captain Roger Hill.
3: Hey, thanks so much. It's an honor to be here.
0: Well, this is quite a story, obviously, and uh, I'm going to let you tell it, but what does that mean? How does that happen? How would the rights of the enemy take priority over our own military troops? How did that happen?
3: Man, that's a great question. I, I, I can't exactly explain how we've gotten there. I, I can sort of give a broad brush uh, view, of I think, how things have unfolded over time. Um, basically, I think we're in an unpopular war like previous conflicts. I think our political class, uh, rather than take responsibility for the decisions that they have made to put us there, have scapegoated the troops at the lowest level for unfortunate uh, mishaps that may occur on the battlefield. We are dealing with a very complex environment, one of the most complex in our history, where the enemy um, really believes in their twisted perspective um, of the world. They're willing to blow themselves up. They're willing to blow other people up um, for their cause, They fight from the base of their own populace, which means that the taking on of collateral and civilian casualties is an inevitable reality of this type of warfare. Rather than our government stepping up and saying, hey, we put you in this very difficult predicament, uh, U.S. soldier or U.S. Marine, uh, and we're going to take responsibility for the collateral that's taken, what they've done as more and more time has gone by is they've progressively thrown more and more soldiers and troops under the bus and uh, basically sent them to jail or ended their careers with investigations.
0: Right, and I want to talk specifically, obviously, what happened to you. But are you saying that uh, this is a very different kind, we are engaged in very different kinds of wars now, just as you described, different than the Vietnam War from World War One, World War Two. yet our military or all our branches of the military haven't, acclimated adjusted changed in terms of the types of the rules and regulations are the same or they're applying the same rules and regs that they did to other wars that were very different because you didn't have people who were going to blow themselves up and kill civilians and and do you know purposefully and that so the military is really just kind of fighting new wars in old ways
3: well i think you know, you can become more precise with technology and you can certainly reduce collateral damage and civilian casualties with technology. But at the end of the day, you, warfare um, and counterinsurgencies, which are the type of fight that we're in right now, are going to require boots on the ground and, you know, soldiers and Marines interacting with the local populace. And that's where our enemy today tends to hide and fight from. So there is no way around civilian casualties. That That is true from history uh, all the way to, the, to today it's just a reality of the type of fight that we're engaged in so it's not a matter of adapting we've adapted as best we can but we're dealing with people who are willing to draw us into the populace fire from that populace knowing that they're gonna um, th- that we're gonna incur civilian casualties and then use that as propaganda against us there's no way around it
0: all right so what happened to you specifically
3: Thank you. Um, Yeah, so Dog Company uh, starts off in 2008, 2009. My heavy weapons company was stationed in a very violent province in eastern Afghanistan, and the enemy always seemed to be one step ahead of us, uh, to the tune of us taking about a 30% casualty rate uh, to include two killed in action. Through the aid of a counter-intel team, we discovered that we had 12 spies operating on our base. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it was, but what was going on in Afghanistan at this time is that the government was hiring a lot of Afghan uh, local nationals to serve as translators and other laborers on our bases because they were stretching us so thin to do combat operations. So we were relying on these Afghan local nationals to do a lot of the work on our bases while we went out and focused on patrolling. Well, they didn't do a good job betting these translators and these particular workers because 12 of them were reporting our movements to the enemy, which is what was leading to such a high casualty rate. We were also... Um, being given credible intelligence at that point in time that the enemy was planning a large scale attack basically to try and overrun our base. Uh, the rules of engagement under NATO at that point in time, and this is something a lot of people don't realize, is that in Afghanistan we fell under NATO. In Iraq we fell under the U.S. flag. Two different rules of engagement. Under NATO, you had at that time you had four days to bring charges against enemy combatants that you brought under your charge. Well, in order to do that, I needed my higher command to take pick these guys up and take them to the next level of detention, which they refused to do. And so with that clock ticking down, with the urgency of the intelligence of the large-scale attack, my first sergeant, Tommy Scott, and I decided to interrogate these spies ourselves. That interrogation included me running a ruse, which is legal according to the law of warfare. Basically, I took a group of detainees. Outside of their holding area, I fired my weapon into the ground, making that the ones that were inside the holding area believe that I had just killed the others in order to get them to give me critical intelligence. That led to an investigation, the investigation to a hearing, and the hearing led to me being drummed out of the military.
0: So in that case, what were you supposed, I'm putting that in quotations, what were you supposed to do? What?
3: Well, I think I think I did what I was supposed to do. That's, yeah, that's you, the rub. Yeah. That's the problem, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm being
3: yeah, facetious, yeah, I, I guess. I like,
0: yeah. So, given what you knew, you were supposed to, or what needed to be done, you were not supported by who? Who's the, Where you're the captain? Who's above you?
3: Right. So, I've got a battalion command. Um, uh-huh. My battalion. You know, in in this, I don't want to just pin it on my battalion commander or my brigade command, although they didn't do a good job of managing the situation. This was systemic of the entire theater, still is to today. I think it's only gotten worse, you know, over the last several years. Um, they were under a lot of pressure to appease the host nation for which our, we were in to conduct our operations. And a part of that was doing everything we could to make nice with the people of Afghanistan. But there, there's a certain line there that you can't cross, and that line, to me, is our people have to come first. Otherwise, you know, and, and again, come first within reason. Otherwise, don't send us over. If you're not committed to seeing it through, then don't send us over.
0: All right. After that happened, and you did what you was, you know, what you needed to do, what you had to do, um, and they didn't support you. Uh, then what was the next step for you? I mean, I know that just, and this is kind of an aside, as I understand that you're, that the army didn't really even want you to, to, to publish this book that they, that um, they kind of stalled the publication of this book, which is your story, obviously for two years. Yeah. So yeah,
3: I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for addressing that. So on, on the back of the book, dog company, um, there's a couple of bullet points. And one of those addresses what you just mentioned. So, this investigation and the hearing that I just mentioned is uh, a part of a, a process or procedure, um, according to military law, called an Article 32 hearing. And there is an investigating officer who sits above that Article 32 hearing and at the end of the hearing renders a set of findings. My command, um, officers within my command conspired, To to ensure that those findings never saw the light of day so they would not be available through the Freedom of Information Act. I have confirmation of this because, you know, dozens and dozens of interviews we've done of people within the command and of my soldiers in order to write this
0: book. So what, I guess what I'm saying is, I mean, your book is obviously a very important book and it's going to give all of us, lay people, at least uh, an opportunity to kind of get the inside story because we don't really understand, I don't think. We don't, I mean, as you said, you know, I didn't, you know, the rules of engagement, for instance, what does that mean? What can you do or not do? How do you change that? What do you, I mean, you made a decision um, and you made a decision that was going to, you know, obviously you had some idea how that would impact on you, I would think, um, by making a decision that didn't go along with these rules of engagement. Um, How do you change things? I mean, obviously writing this book does that, but um, specifically, I guess, what kind of a response are you getting from now that it's out?
3: The, The response has been fantastic. And, you know, when you do a project like this, in the beginning, sometimes you're a little unsure because you feel like you're the only person with this voice and this experience. But what's happened over the seven years of writing this book and the, the, the obstacles that have been put in our way by the government to getting it to publication is we've discovered not just dozens but hundreds of stories of other soldiers and Marines who have experienced this in, a, in being punished and prosecuted in a formal sense. There are lots of ways to informally punish people, which we've also heard about uh, through the military ranks. So I agree with you that the first step in correcting a problem like this is bringing awareness to it, which is what Dog Company is doing. There's also an onus here on the American public, which is why I'm so grateful to have this time in your radio show. I think people need to realize that the decisions that are being made overseas in these theaters of war are an extension of their vote. I would like for people, I would like to challenge the people that are listening to your show to, to add to their checklist of things that they think about when they're considering putting someone in office is to, to to consider what it is, this politician, um, how it is they feel about, you know, rules of engagement and when and where we commit our troops and under what circumstances. I got to tell you that with all this talk about Syria, I'm, I'm worried on two accounts. One, I don't want to go into another theater um, without these rules of engagement that are so overly restrictive and, overly burdensome having been rolled back first, because I want to make sure that our people have the freedom to do their job and not be scared uh, to be persecuted or prosecuted if things go sideways. The other part of this is uh, I just, I'm very hesitant in general to jump into another conflict. Um, and I, and I, it's it's been very hard for me to hear all this talk about, you know, missiles being launched into Syria and, and just sort of this, uh, a lot of talk about we need to show force and strength, and I agree with all those things to a certain extent, but at the same time, having lost men under my charge personally, I, I think we need to be very careful about where we commit our people and what the long-term impacts of that are.
0: Well, I, I would agree with you. Uh, just obviously just, I'm a layperson, but it seems to me you just don't decide. And, and uh, one day we're going to go in and, and bomb Syria, uh, you know, how do we, so what can we do to change that? It seems to me that, I mean, what do you say to someone, Donald Trump is commander in chief? How do you feel about him and his experiences and his ability to, to do just what you've said?
3: Well, I, I voted for Donald Trump. Um, I, I believe one of the, the best things that he has brought to the table uh, for all Americans is that people are less afraid to speak their mind. And I think that's a part of, the, uh, the the pc culture that's crept into our society into our government and now our military unfortunately which is a place we can't afford to have it. And so if for any reason at all I'm very thankful that he's in office because people like me, you know, people like you feel more freedom to say what we think we need to say to get our messages out. I want to I want to take your audience back a few years in, in in sort of helping answer this question. In 2003 Uh, General Shinseki, uh, Eric Shinseki, was the chief of staff of the army. He was asked by the Bush administration, Rumsfeld and Cheney, what it would take to win in Iraq. Okay, I I am not happy about the fact that we went into Iraq. Okay, but at this point in time, not a lot of people had a lot of information. So we're in the process of gathering intel and trying to make a decision. Shinseki was asked, hey, what will it take to win? He said at least 250,000 boots on the ground. Okay, Evers, he was basically pushed out of office, basically pushed out of his appointment at that point in time because he wasn't coding the party line to push into Iraq with a much smaller footprint. Now, what he was thinking about and what history has taught us is that you can't go into a country without thinking about phase three and phase four operations, which are past the invasion, past toppling the government, what you do to rebuild that country and fight the insurgency. And Shinseki was wise enough to speak to that with the force level that was required to make that happen. Before we talk about rules of engagement, before we talk about, you know, fighting another country, we really need to educate people on what it really takes to go into another country and and basically, you know, change a regime. And we've been talking in terms of tens of thousands um, in terms of our commitment to Iraq, tens of thousands in terms of our commitment to Afghanistan, and that's been totally wrong because our own doctrine in the military speaks to a need of 20 peacekeeping forces to every 1,000 people in the host nation population. So if you do the math in Afghanistan, we should not have gone into Afghanistan to begin with because our own doctrine teaches us that we should have had a force of at least 600,000 boots on the ground to commit to that theater of operation or in order to see it through. Instead, we've sent fractions of that, which means we're overworking our people, we're sending the same people back year after year, which means we're beating them up emotionally, physically, and psychologically. No wonder the suicide rate among veterans is so high. And then MacArthur, taking you back even further back in history, back uh, World War II era, uh, General MacArthur said that you cannot send, um, the, the men that you send in to do the fighting can't be to send the same people that go back and do the, the uh, reconstruction and the rebuilding because they've been programmed and hardwired, not to any fault of their own. We've asked them to undertake a very difficult uh, task, which is to fight the enemy. But you don't want to use that same mindset to go in and rebuild a country. It creates a conflict. So your, your force structure required to oversee and rebuild a country after you've gone into topless government gets even bigger. And so from the very beginning in Iraq and the very beginning in Afghanistan, we have totally set our young soldiers and Marines up for failure. And no one in the government wants to step step up and take ownership of this. And this is all documented in history, and it's all documented in our own doctrine. It's just been mind blowing to me that we we can't have an intellectual discussion about why it is we're failing there. This is this is the simple math behind it.
0: Well, it seems to me. I mean, and, and I do I do agree with you, um, I, um, even though I voted for Hillary. But I do I you know, but I think on some of these points. Uh, particularly, I think it's really important what you're saying, because my, my other guests we were talking about telling the truth. The public doesn't get to hear the truth. And I think whether it's in a Democratic administration or a Republican administration, we, we just hear, you know, we're sort of the political correctness, the way, you know, and particularly with, you know, our senators and, and, and House of Representatives, they want to get elected. So they kind of tone it all down for us so we really don't have the truth we you know exactly what you've been talking about we don't have that information the public doesn't have that information i think i think we just get uh, a a lot of um sort of trying to smooth things over for us you know or you know we'll go into afghanistan we'll go into iraq we'll go into whatever but it's and we're not going to send that many troops and and, and, and we, so, you know, in terms of us, when we vote for these politicians, I don't think we're getting the, you know, we're just not getting the truth to, to, to begin with. Is, is that what yeah. you're saying? I mean, that's, yeah.
3: I, I think we're being lied to. I think we're being treated like we're children and we don't know any better and that they are the experts and that we just need to get out of the way so they can make all the important decisions. And I'm sick of it. And this, this whole, you know, ideal of politically driven rules of engagement that's highlighted in my book, Dog Company, it's just an extension of that overall failed apparatus. So I agree with you. It needs to change. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. I, I think we're being life on a regular basis.
0: It's politics, and we're fighting wars, and, and um, yeah, and we're not getting the truth. But you are out there, and you are doing, besides your book, and you're doing a lot of other things too, because you are an advocate for the military, for veterans, and also I see as first responders. But so you, you must be out there every day. What are you doing like in our in our communities, I mean, like, talking to people, um, tell us about that.
3: Well, really right now I'm focused on raising awareness for this book. Um, I, I really believe that people don't truly understand what our young men and women are up against. Um, so that that's kind of consuming my time, just pushing dog company. Um, I'm also very passionate about um, the effects of war on our young men and women, um, unlike any other time in history, we've been sending the same people back over and over again. So I've got a a real quick vignette I'd love to share with you because I think your audience will find this very interesting. So um, there's a guy named Bob Bales who served with um, a a unit out of um, Fort Lewis up in Washington State. This is a guy that back a few years ago left his base, walked out into the – Civilian populace around his base, and he shot up and killed several families. I think he ended up killing twelve or fourteen people. He was convicted of murder. Do you remember this story very recently? I don't like, remember that. Twenty twelve or so. Twenty. Yeah. Uh, just just a couple of years ago. I've just recently been reading more heavily into it. Well, um, it, it turns out that Bob, you know, admitted to doing all this, convicted, sent away for you know basically life, but he's now on appeal and. The interesting, thing, interesting things that have been coming to light in all this case, and this demonstrates a lot of what I'm highlighting in the book now and what you just um, pointed to in terms of you know, our government lying to us about what's really going on. First off, um, Bob, I think it was Staff Sergeant Bales, had, was on his fourth deployment. And before going out on that fourth deployment, had told his chain of command, hey, I've had enough. I've been fighting, and I'm, I'm really struggling with post-traumatic stress. And I've, I've just had enough. I can't go back again. They basically said, you know what? We're sorry. We need you. You're going back again. So he had already said, I need help. He already raised his hand to ask for help. And the, the, the army said, um, we're going to ignore your plea for help. You know, and he said, well, I'm, I'm dealing with some things psychologically. And they said, we don't care. We're going to send you anyways. So they put him on some prescription drugs that, and I don't remember the names of them exactly, but this is all documented now by the, the defense council that's representing him now, but they put him on medications that were both hallucinogenics and, uh, and then also had the side effect of um, making people homicidal. <laughs> so they, they send him into Afghanistan on these prescription drugs that make, that make him hallucinate and make him homicidal. And they put him out on patrol. He wakes up one night, leaves his base, you know, Basically, you know, sleepwalks out from what I understand and then kills a bunch of innocent Afghans, which, you know what, we find out in a later time weren't actually so innocent. Um, they were biometrically tied to a lot of the enemy that they were fighting in that area. But all these things, the prescriptions, the biometric um, evidence that tied to the people that he killed to the enemy, all hidden by the government because they wanted to find somebody to scapegoat, to pin what had happened because it was so unpopular they wanted to find somebody to pin on because they didn't want to take ownership of it themselves even though the decisions that they had made that failed him and failed his unit led him basically pushed him to the point to where he was in that deployment that's that is
0: uh, that is quite a story i mean they they, they literally they, they sent him back he knew he wouldn't be able to handle it he was in uh, psychologically and then they drugged him right and then he,
3: yeah, they punish- they're killing. They're yeah, ki- they're ki- Catherine. They're killing our veterans. They're just pumping them full of prescriptions. So I'm really passionate about this issue because the army is all about just making mission happen. They don't seem to give a you know what about our troops sometimes, and so they're just patching them up and sending them back out again. And it is so frustrating to watch happen because these young men and women are signing up to defend our way of life. They're willing to lay down their lives to protect the you know the, the free speech that you and I have and the, you know, the amenities that we have, and our government is just running them over, over and over again. It's killing me. So these are examples of things that I'm trying to bring to light. These are examples of things that I'm investigating myself, um, I'm, and I'm just trying to share that with people. The other thing I do in the private sector is I work for a company that um, manufactures body cameras uh, and, and sells body cameras to police departments. And, you know, you, this is a very difficult issue, you know, having Big Brother over – uh, the police's shoulder, but we provide a technology that I think really strikes a nice balance between uh, allowing for there to be transparency in policing, but also taking a lot of the logistics and thought behind having to turn a camera on and off, and the worry that police have uh, in terms of having to manage another piece of technology as a part of their overall offering um, off their shoulders. It's a company called Warn based out of Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Well, uh, Captain, we that's another... Topic for the show—that's—and a, <laughs> um, a good one too. We, I mean, we only have a minute left, but—and uh, I'm serious about that. But so, because we only do have a minute left, "Dog Company." This is the name of the book: a true story of American soldiers abandoned by their high command. And we're talking to the author, Captain Roger Hill. And um, just give us a website we can go to in 30 seconds, and any more—you know—where we can, more information. We can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Uh, I hope. And um, so.
3: Yeah, you can, you can buy Dog Company, A True Story of American Soldiers Abandoned by Their High Command. Anywhere you can buy books, online or in um, uh, brick-and-mortar stores. If you go online through any of your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., it's at Dog Company, the book, at Dog Company, the book, and uh, you can see what we've been doing here lately in terms of pushing the story.
0: Great. Captain Roger Hill, thanks so much for being on the show today.
3: Thank you so much. Take care.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.
2: It's staff and men.